morning, everybody. The topic I was going to speak on was what to do when you have crises in your practice. And I think that fits actually very well with this chapter on fortitude. Okay, because fortitude is what you need when you have crises in your practice. Yeah, and also because when we have crisis in our practice, our mind is very turbulent, it's unhappy. And as Shantideva reminded us, an unhappy mind is fertile ground for the arising of anger. Okay, so it all kind of fits. It's looking at fortitude from a different perspective. Because uh, I know for myself uh, that sometimes when you have uh, crises in your practice, they could be for for many, many different reasons, but sometimes it comes from disappointment, yeah? But it seems like, oh, I'm disappointed in what somebody did or how something turned out. Uh, and that disappointment can easily go to anger, yeah? Because, yeah, I'm disappointed. Dis disappointment, okay. One of my, you know, projections about how the world should be didn't manifest. Yeah, I didn't get what I want when I wanted it, so I'm disappointed. But, you know, then if, we, if we're not careful, the mind starts churning up anger towards the people who disappointed us. Okay, and then we find ourselves right smack in the middle of chapter 6, reading it until all hours of the day and night, okay, which is how I learned it so well and how uh, the book Working with Anger came to be written due to the kindness of the macho Italian monks, you know, that uh, they were really kind. Otherwise, I never would have learned this. The book would never have gotten written because I thought I didn't have a problem with anger. And they so ever so gently told, taught me that I did. Yeah. So then, you know, you start studying this chapter because you realize it's, you have two choices. Yeah. You practice fortitude or you go down this life and you go down next life and it's a big mess. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. It's like going to India. You either change or you freak out and come home. Two alternatives in India. Nobody is in the middle, yeah? So it's the same when anger arises. You either do something with it or it takes you down to the bottom of the ocean with it. Okay, so let's start with our visualization of the holy beings and ourselves surrounded by sentient beings because it's within taking refuge that we're going to uh, think about how to handle crises in our practice. And it's within working for the benefit of sentient beings, recognizing that we have to uh, solve our problems and go and resolve our crises in order to benefit others. We can't stay stuck by just going round and around in them. 
So when we take refuge, really think of the Buddhas wanting to help us through our crises, through our bouts of anger or depression. And uh, let the light, the light of wisdom and compassion that streams from them into us and into all the sentient beings around, let that uh, light bring knowledge of, of a remedy to the situation and optimism to be able to resolve uh, difficult situations. Let's cultivate our motivation and remember how important it is to have a very big mind, a very wide uh, scope, long-term, broad, yeah, so not just uh, a view of life revolving around our own little dramas but thinking of the universe with its countless beings, thinking of beginningless time in samsara, thinking of eons practicing the bodhisattva path. Because this bigger scope is actually the scope within which we live not the little narrow one of what's happening today or what's happening this lifetime. So the more we can have this very large, encompassing mind, the easier it is to think of the situation of all sentient beings stuck in samsara, overwhelmed by their afflictions and karma. And the more we can think of that, the easier it is to have compassion for them. And the compassion we have when we have that big mind, it includes the compassion for the dukkha of pain, which 
consists of situations that everybody recognizes as unsatisfactory. It includes compassion for sentient beings having the experiencing the dukkha of um, change, whereby happiness does not hang around long, but degenerates. But especially this broad view brings into focus the uh, pervasive dukkha of conditioning. And this is harder to understand because we so easily think of dukkha as the dukkha of pain. But pervasive, the pervasive dukkha of conditioning is involves, when we recognize it, having compassion for sentient beings who take rebirth again and again under the influence of karma and afflictions. So that includes rich people and famous people and people have, who have a good life in samsara. So sometimes it's harder for us to have compassion for those people. But they, like everybody else, are subject to rebirth due to afflictions and karma. Even the gods who have, who are blissed out in their samadhi, they're still in the same situation. So let's develop compassion for all beings and then use that compassion to inspire our aspiration to attain full awakening in order to benefit them and lead them from that kind of dukkha. So, in talking about uh, the crises we undergo during our ordination, or in our life in general, <laughs> even we're not ordained, um, in that discussion we'll start out with kind of ones that are easier, and then uh, I want 
to call on you to propose some other ones. Okay? Um, so that we, yeah, have a, have a variety of crises. Yeah. Okay, so one a comparatively easy one that when you're in it, of course, does not feel easy. Yeah, none of these things feel easy. And that is why we feel like we're in crisis, because our mind goes and gets completely tight around something. Okay, so one of them that uh, might be happening uh, towards the end of the monastic training course is, well, I've learned so much about monastic life, and there's all these precepts, and I can't do that, and I can't do that, and I should do this, and I shouldn't do that. And there's so many things I have to do, and I really should be able to do all these things already. Otherwise, I am a failure as a Dharma practitioner. I am a failure as a monastic. The whole thing is totally useless because I cannot keep all these precepts perfectly. In fact, I don't even know what they all are. And there's then there's not only the precepts to abandon these negative actions, there's the, the prescriptive precepts that you have to do all these other positive things. And there's just too much, and I'm going crazy. I just want... I came to Dharma to be able to relax my mind, and I'm just like nuts. I want to go down this hill ASAP. Forget the cars. I'm taking a sled. Zoom. <laughs> okay. Anybody uh, feel that way towards the end of a course? Um, I know some of you well, and I can imagine it. <laughs> Yeah, um, so this, yeah, this can very easily come, you know, at, at the, towards the end when you've learned so much. Okay. But w- when you go into that crisis, what is the big thing you have to learn from that crisis? What is happening? It looks like there's this external situation of all these things that you once had so much aspiration and love for, and now they're crashing down on your head, and you just can't imagine keeping all of those things anyway. Huh? They will help you to think that those things will help you. Can you see that at that moment? <laughs> uh oh. Okay. One of the I'll gi- I'll give you the the answer on this one. Okay. But this this answer applies for all the the crises. The big thing to learn, whatever your crisis happens to be, is look how my mind describes that situation to myself. Look how I interpret that situation and react to my own interpretation, forgetting that it's an interpretation and thinking that it's an objective reality out there. Okay, that's the 
big thing to learn. I think very often when we are in a crisis, we do not learn that. We are so fixated on this is an external situation that is real, objectively real. It has nothing to do with my mind. It's these people and that situation. And we're the, the whole thing to learn is, look how my mind is working. Yeah? Look how there's certain things happening. And my mind takes them, puts them together, makes them a story, and tortures myself with them. Okay, that's the big thing to learn. That's usually not what we learn. <laughs> and at, because we don't learn that, we spin around in our crises. Because everywhere we look to try and find a resolution to the crises, we're blocked. Why are we blocked? Because we cannot control other people, and we cannot control the situation. So everything we do to try and resolve this is like, you know, those cartoon figures that run into a wall and go boing, and that's what we keep doing, yeah? And so the crisis hangs around for a really long time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, the the con that's the big thing to learn that applies to all the crises. Now, the con specific content of the crisis could be like this one. There's so much to do and I'm I should have it all down pat and I don't. Okay. So something's wrong with me. Anyway, something's wrong with this path. It's expecting too much of me. I can't do this. It needs to be revamped and make it step by step for, for little kids like me. But I'm not a little kid. I'm an adult with a sincere aspiration, but it's too hard. I'm, oh. okay. Yeah. So that's one. I can think of a few more that I've, uh, uh, Oh, okay. I'll give you another one. Okay. This one's a little bit more difficult, and this one can be very dangerous if you don't handle it. Yeah, immediately. Oh, hmm. That's a really nice-looking guy over there. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. While we're in class, uh, maybe I can, we can talk over lunch, or I'll do in my walking meditation near where he's doing his, or we'll just kind of bump into each other. Yeah, hmm. he looks good. And the little I know about him, yeah, he's also smart, good sense of humor, creative. Everything I've always wanted. <laughs> yeah, all in one package. Oh, but I'm a monastic. I'm celibate. I don't 
get married. Okay. But I can still enjoy looking at somebody who's good looking. (laughs) I, I, I can still... You know, I mean, what's wrong with having a little fantasy? I know it's not going to go anywhere. You know, I am firm in my monastic life. This little thing is, it's not going to go anywhere. But it's kind of fun to have anyway. You know, let it tickle my mind a little bit. You know, you just kind of do that. And then it gives, you know, you know, I'm not flirting, but... Well, maybe that's a little bit of flirting. But no, I'm a monastic. I am not flirting. It's kind of fun, you know, thinking of somebody. Yeah, Buddha boy, finally. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I don't expect a white horse. I'm, I'm down to, I'm being realistic. I'm a Buddhist now. I know he's not going to bring me ultimate happiness. And he doesn't have a white horse. But, you know, it's kind of, it's fun, you know. It's fun just to imagine a little bit. Yeah? And where does that go? Where does that go? How many people... Do you know who have disrobed because of that? Who get themselves to a point of, well, I was just playing with it with my mind. It's no big deal, you know. It's just kind of fun to play with that. It's no big deal. But actually, I've had these longings for a long time. And I've been looking into psychology a bit, and they talk about uh, repressed emotions and repressed needs. And I think my need for companionship and understanding and appreciation and encouragement, you know, my, my needs, those are valid needs. Yeah? Even Marshall agrees with them. You know? And I just have to use kind of, uh, you know, what is it, nonviolent communication. Yeah, those are valid needs. And, you know, there's just, they're just not getting met by ordained life. Yeah, they're just not. I mean, the community of people is really nice. They're really nice people. But inside, I long for some kind of real deep understanding of, you know, the meeting of minds. And, you know, I'm just not getting it in the community. But when I'm with this person and we have these discussions, I feel really fulfilled. Yeah? And I feel appreciated and understood and loved. And what's wrong with that anyway? His Holiness Dalai Lama said the purpose of our life is happiness. So this is making me happy. Yeah? So what's wrong with that? 
Anyway, he's a great Dharma practitioner, really much better than me. And, you know, if we really get together and live together, we'll really, we'll do our meditations together, you know? If one or the other of us wants to sleep, the other one will very gently wake them up and get them out of bed. And then we'll sit down at the our common altar, you know, his and her, or his and his, or her and her, whoever, whoever. <laughs> I don't know all the words anymore. Uh, but we'll just sit next to each other and and we'll we'll practice the Dharma together. Yeah, and that way all my practice will get done. I won't feel lonely doing my practice. Yeah, and I'll learn so much because he knows, and I, we could discuss all of these things, and he can fill me in on what I don't know. And there's other things I know that he doesn't know also. You know, I'm really not a dum-dum. So I can teach him what I know that he doesn't know. This sounds like a really good arrangement. Yeah? Doesn't it? Yeah, you nodded your head. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. You like that too? You're smiling. <laughs> no, but, but, it's the ideal thing, you know? Yeah. You look longing. if only I could have that you know the best of samsara and the best of nirvana but actually our love is pure there's no samsara in it there's no attachment in it at all I just completely with unconditional love towards him So, uh, yeah, and then we, you know, go to somebody and disrobe, you know, give our vows back, give our precepts back, and then we get married and we go off. And it's really wonderful. Yeah, it's great. For about two weeks. (laughs) Yeah, and then... There starts to be little cracks, but we're both Dharma practitioners. We'll fix those cracks. Yeah, we'll fix them. Because we're in love with each other. And it's it's Buddha boy, and I'm so close to enlightenment this way. (laughs) Okay, so so that's another um, crisis. Actually, what, what, but you don't think of it as a crisis. Actually, I left out a big part of the crisis. Okay, the step before you disrobe. Okay, so part of the day you are in seventh heaven. You know, all your needs are getting met. And then you think, well, yeah, we should disrobe and, you know, go off and get married and and have our perfect life together. Um, but what am I going to tell my Dharma friends? What's the community going to say about this when I tell them? And then, uh-oh, 
I have to say something to my teacher. Oh, well, I really shouldn't. Yeah, this is really attachment. I have to stop it. I have to stop it. I want to remain a monastic. Yeah, I really want to. I, you know, my Dharma friends will be so disappointed in me. My teacher will have a, well, they won't have a fit. They have compassion for me, but I know that look. <laughs> yeah. So what do I do? I mean, I want to do this, and there's nothing wrong with it, but it's really going back on my my promises to the Buddha. I really don't want to make, break my promises to the Buddha. But this is Buddha boy. So, so it's not, it's just moving my promises over a little bit. Okay, and then you go into real crisis because what are your, my Dharma friends going to say? And what are my benefactors going to say? Yeah, these people have been giving me money to live for years and years. And then I say, actually, how about a wedding present instead? <laughs> no, that's not going to work. Uh, you know? And then you, your mind gets so confused. What are you going to do? Yeah, what do I really want? I don't know. I don't know. I want... I want this relationship, but I also, I also love monastic life, and I really don't want to have to face these things. I don't really know what I want. <sighs> okay. So what do you do? How do you resolve that conflict? How do you resolve that crisis in in yourself? Yeah. Especially you look around, you know? Different people that you know and respected, they, they got married, they left the Sangha and got married. Yeah. Well, why can't I do that? But do I really want to? I don't know. Okay, so what are you going to do? Yeah, that's a hard one, isn't it? That's a difficult crisis because attachment is so strong. You know, it's so strong and it's like, we become like a donkey with a ring in his nose, you know, and the rope is attached to the ring, and it pulls the donkey. That's what attachment does to us. It pulls us, but it hurts because the ring is in our nose. So what do we do? Mm-hmm. For me, it's so important to recognize when attachment starts arising, the very moment, that's what I, that's the goal. Of course, that's not what always happens, but 
that's the goal. And then when that starts arising and I feel that, you know, anticipation, that zingy uh, feeling, then I have to talk to somebody. I have to, I have to reach out to somebody that can help me see uh, what I'm doing. Uh, that's very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if I keep it all inside and it's just this soap opera in my head, <laughs> I'll probably go down the hill, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What about going and telling the person that you're attached to them? No? <laughs> Why not? Huh? Oh, why? What harm would it do them? They should be flattered that I'm attached to them. What? What? Why not tell them? I just said you should consider that person. I mean, whose interest are you thinking of when you want to uh, unload your burden? (laughs) Are you thinking about that person? Or you think about yourself. Then it brings us closer together because we have a shared secret and a shared suffering and a shared confusion. And how will we solve this? Only together. (laughs) Romeo and Juliet. Maria and Tony. (laughs) Yes? The other person may have no clue. And so when they do find out there's this attraction, you could just mess that person up totally. And then they think, what a great idea. You know, I have been wondering what's going wrong with my practice for so long. Fantastic. Now there's a solution. So you've messed up another person. Yeah. You really mess up another person. Yeah. And so if you don't have any integrity for yourself about this issue, think of what it's going to do to the other person and their practice. Yeah. And how it will separate them from the Dharma and cause confusion in their mind. Mm -hmm. And then watch how your mind continues to romanticize it. Yeah. One thing that I strongly recommend is um, those times in your practice where you feel very inspired. It may be when you're requesting ordination or just after you've taken ordination, or it may be during a particular teaching that you heard where something really clicked and you had a very strong experience of the meaning of the teachings. Write that down, okay? Write down how you felt when your mind was very clear and completely convinced in the monastic path. Yeah, write that down. And then when your mind has doubt or confusion, go back and read that. And remember, this is how I felt. This is what I thought when my mind was completely clear. 
Yeah. Not when my mind was overwhelmed by attachment, but when I really had a strong connection to the Dharma. So I don't want to let that connection slip. And that connection is, is something to really trust. It's much more trustworthy than our attachment. Attachment is totally untrustworthy, isn't it? Attachment, you become like a yo-yo-yo, you know. Lama Yeshe used to tell us we were a bunch of yo-yos. Yeah, and he's right. You know, that's what attachment does to our mind. We become like a bunch of yo-yos. Yeah. So I think that thing of, uh, so that's one suggestion. Write it down. Another thing that you may want to write down or just hold in your head, if your mind starts, here's another scenario, where your mind starts doubting the Dharma itself. Yeah. Does the Dharma really work? This talk of being in samsara because of afflictions and karma, do I really believe that? Come on. You know, that's just another makeup story, like all the rest I've heard from religions. Uh, I don't think that's really true. How do I know the Buddha exists anyway? How do I know nirvana exists? What am I doing here? Yeah, maybe I did join a cult. Yeah, that's what my parents told me I did. You laugh, that's what my parents told me I did. And they went to groups for kids, for parents of kids who had joined cults. So, do I really believe in this whole thing of Buddhism and all these deities, you know? It was so complicated, these different deities. It was so simple. One God, monotheistic God. Like, you know, they taught me in Sunday school about that, how that was such an advancement in human thinking when they, instead of having the God of the sun and the moon and all these different things, human beings realized there was one God. That's so much easier than all this Buddha stuff, my goodness. Yeah which I don't even know if I believe anyway. So what happens? That's a big crisis, isn't it? Yeah. What am I doing here practicing this stuff that I'm not sure I even believe in? So what do you do then? Similar to what was mentioned earlier, but you go back to a practice that has really impacted your mind in a big way that you have confidence in. Mm-hmm. That'd be one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Something about the Dharma that you can definitely not deny the truth of. Because there must be something like that that attracted us in the first place. So you need to know what that is for you And when doubt comes in the mind, go back to that. And this 
I know for sure is true. Yeah? But also, what was the first thing I said? Look at your mind. Yeah. Is this doubt real or has my mind created this doubt? What is going on in my life that now my mind is creating doubt? Is there some kind of restlessness and doubt is an excuse to get out of here because my mind is restless? Yeah. Or maybe Buddha boy planted that doubt in my mind because we're so close and we share everything. And he's not quite sure about this whole Buddhist worldview and samsara and nirvana. Yeah, so I, I caught the doubt from him. Did I really catch it from him? Or was it there all along and I never really dealt with it? Okay. So also looking, you know, when our minds create, you know, this very, this very first thing I said, look at how your mind is creating this situation and seeing this situation. Very often, the real problem is not what the actual situation seems to be. It's that something you're not connecting with yourself in your practice. That's often the, the problem. I mean, why, why is Buddha boy so charming even without his white horse? Because you're not connected to your practice. Why is doubt so enticing? Yeah. Because somehow we're not connected, you know, with, with what's in here. So the lack of connection could be because We've let our mind get distracted by a lot of busyness and worldly things and going here and there and doing this and that so that, you know, we haven't uh, kept up our practice or we've hurried through our practice or, you know, yeah, maybe we, didn't, we aren't practicing the right thing for us at the right time anyway, yeah. So to, to look at, at what else is going on in the mind, that this particular thing became a crisis at this moment. Okay. Then, another crisis. <laughs> a crisis with your teacher. Yeah. And crisis with our teacher can take Many, many different forms. And some are milder and some are very traumatic. Okay? And those ones can get you really tangled up because you've heard enough Dharma to know that, especially if you've taken initiation, that you have some Samaya, or even if you haven't because the Tibetans emphasize the guru so early on the path, you know, 
And they bring a lot of the stuff that's actually for tantric practitioners. They start teaching you that at the beginning of the path, and that can create a lot of confusion in the mind. Yeah. And so your teacher does something that, you know, hmm, what's going on here? So you have to look and... Sometimes the thing that you're getting very wigged out about is actually just a difference in opinion or a difference in preference or a difference in how you do things, okay? But our mind can spin that into something enormous. And when you add this whole thing about breaking Samaya into it, then you get really stuck. Yeah. Because you hear if you have one negative, you know, for every moment of anger you hold towards your teacher, you're going to hell for that number of eons. And it's like, I don't want to go to hell, you know, but I, I, you know, I, what my teacher is doing doesn't make any sense. I don't know how they're doing this. Okay. And you get all tight about it, okay? So it could, and it seems like, okay, so some of, some of the things that we get tortured like this about are just differences in, in opinion and preference. Yeah, but they're important uh, differences to us. Sometimes it involves an ethical breach. You know, our teacher broke precepts or something. Then we're like, What's going on here? Okay? But both of them, uh, our mind can really make excruciatingly painful for a long period of time. I speak from experience. Okay? What... Okay. So here... What you have to do is, again, look at how, how is my mind interpreting this, what this, what I've seen? How is it interpreting it? And first, is this a difference in opinion and preference, or is this an ethical thing? Okay, first to discriminate that, because that will help make it a little bit easier. But even if it's a preference, okay, so, uh, I'll give you some examples. Your teacher starts talking about how women are inferior and they're very emotional. And even there's, they try, uh, you know, the, the nuns who are studying to become a geshe, their quality of debate is not as good as the monks, you know. And, uh, you know, the, the nuns are, they're just emotional and they can't, they're always jealous of each other. They're always quarreling. You know, these are the usual stereotypes of a group of women, aren't they? Yeah. They're usual stereotypes. But your teacher seems to be believing in them. Okay. Now, if you're a man, that doesn't bother you so much. 
you know, it's like, well, you know, you wish you'd teach, well, maybe you think, maybe you agree with what he's saying. Yeah. Or maybe, uh, you don't agree, but it's not that big of a thing. But if you're a woman, that's a big thing. Okay. Yeah. And then you really begin to doubt, can I trust this teacher? If he really believes this, can I trust him? Yeah, is he really going to guide me to awakening? Or is he just going to dismiss me as, you know, some emotional, overreactive woman who, you know, is always quarreling with other women and yeah. Okay. So, what do you do? What do you do? Okay. Anybody have any ideas? Yeah? You feel totally confused. You feel wounded. Well, I I have to come back to what my refuge is in. It's in Buddha Dharma Sangha. And then I have to parse out, um, uh, like, cultural beliefs or, you know, how we learn in society about all the different things. And then what I'm looking for from my teacher what I'm looking for from my teacher is to teach me the Dharma. And so, you know, I look at the full, full everything, but then I put my mind on what the teacher can teach me. That's, that's the important thing, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Because we came here for the Dharma. So, if this teacher is knowledgeable in the Dharma, I can learn. But then our mind goes, but if he's so knowledgeable, why is he spouting all this usual stereotypical prejudice against women? You would think that his Dharma practice would help him have a bigger mind and change and see that. Okay, This is similar to the crisis that a lot of the Zen people went into some years ago, I remember it was a big thing in their community, maybe 10, 15 years ago, when they realized that a lot of the Japanese Roshis backed the Imperial Japanese Army during the Second World War and supported the invasion of so many countries. You know, the, the imperial, Japanese imperial army. It occupied Singapore and Malaysia and China and, you know, Philippines and Indonesia and Korea and, and these Roshis who were supposedly enlightened thought that was a good idea. And, and, you know, this is what they, they had allegiance to the emperor and this is good for Japan. And the American disciples, when they saw this in some of their teachers, they really, it was shocking. They didn't know what to do with it. Yeah, because it goes so much against their own political beliefs. Yeah. 
So this is the same. It's similar with a view on women, for example. It goes so much against our beliefs, and not only our beliefs, but our self-confidence. Yeah? Because here's this person that I admire who has been so wonderful in teaching me the Dharma. And now I find out that he's just, you know, full of, of these kind of stereotypical prejudices. So can I re- really even trust the Dharma teachings? Okay. So I'm going to load you with another situation too before we re- we come back to resolving this one. Okay, so you are liberal politically, yeah? And, uh, you know, you think that having social net, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, unemployment, you think these things are good for people, you think it's good that the government has uh, housing for, you know, people who are homeless or people who can't afford. You want to see an increase in the food stamp program so that families who are below poverty, you know, or close to poverty can have enough food. Yeah. You want, you want what's best for the people in the country. And, uh, yeah, and you're liberal. You don't want war. You're tired of all this stuff of, you know, building up the military. You're tired of, you know, our country criticizing other countries and getting into all this political da And, you know, and you're tired of all that. Yeah. And Buddhism speaks to your heart because Buddhism is talking about peace and harmony and working out conflicts and it's nonviolent and so on. And then you find out that your teacher thinks Trump is a fantastic president and that George W. was a great president. I'm not joking. Yeah, this happens. And your teacher raves about, you know, George W. What, you know, and, and Trump too, calling out China for human rights abuses. You know, really sticking up for Tibet and saying that, you know, Tibet is independent from China, and the Chinese communist government is occupying Tibet illegally, and they need to give it autonomy, and they need to pull their troops out, and they need to stop the genocide and environmental devastation in Tibet. So they vote for George W. and Trump. Yeah? And you're going, oh my God, you know. And again, somebody who backs somebody like that for president, it seems like, you know, how 
how do they mesh the Dharma with their totally obnoxious political beliefs? Because remember, they disagree with us, so they must be obnoxious. (laughs) How do they mesh that? And then, can I really trust this teacher if he believes things like that? Hmm? Or you're gay, and then, you know, uh, you read something, uh, you know, your teacher is following Vasubandhu, and Vasubandhu has a whole list of, you know, restrictions that affect not only gay gay couples, but straight couples. What you do with who, where, when, how, you know? And you don't like that one either. It's like, why? Who's Vasubhana? Why do we have to follow Vasubhana? Why is this wrong? Yeah? What's wrong with this anyway? These guys, they're homophobic. They're, you know, whatever phobic. <laughs> you know, they're, they're like, what's going on here? And then you find out that your teacher believes that the world is flat. That also comes from Vasubandhu. Okay? So Vas- Vasu, the world is flat. We know the world isn't flat. Yeah. Why we even okay. One of my most precious teachers thought the world was flat. And one of the nuns, you know, and they have a whole thing with measurements of the hell where the hell realms are located. And they are so many poxe. Poxe, I think is I can't forget how big a poxe was, but you know, there's so many poxe beneath Bogaya, and that's the hell realm. So, this one nun did all the the, the uh, uh, calculations. She changed the number of poxe into miles or kilometers, and measured from Bogaya underneath to where the hell realms are. And she brought in a globe and said, "Geshila." From your calculation, yeah, this is how the world is. The hell realms are in the U.S. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, that's where the burning hell is, you know, the worst of Vichy hell. That's where it is, you know. Do you, you know, how can you believe that the world is flat? How can you believe that the sun and that the uh, sun orbits the earth? You know, that's all been disproven. But Vasubandhu said so. Yeah, and Vasubandhu also gave measurements for how far the sun and the moon were from each other. And he also told us why the sky is blue. Because 
There's the flat universe. There's Mount Meru at the center. You have the four continents around it. Like we do with our mandala offering, we are in the southern continent, the side of Mount Meru that faces the southern continent. That side is blue. So that's why our sky is blue. Yeah? If you go to the northern continent, the sky is a different color because that side of Mount Meru that faces the northern continent or the east or western continent is a different color. What do you think about that, physicist? <laughs> you know, and here, here it is. One of your mo- one teacher that you has been so amazingly kind. And when he teaches emptiness, it just really goes in. And, and then he says the world is flat. And he says, you know, then what do you do with all of this? Okay. So again, it comes back to, yeah. One is, why is this important to me? What is going on in my mind that their political, astronomical, <laughs> yeah, cosmological, okay, uh, views and their view on, on gender and their view on sex? Why are these things so important to me? Is, you know, why am I picking out those things to have a crisis over? Does it really matter? Well, if your teacher is Western, it might matter a bit more. Yeah, but if your teacher is Tibetan and that's how they grew up and what they learned as kids, yeah, and Tibet didn't, doesn't, it didn't have modern education. It's only now in India that the refugee kids are having a modern education. Yeah. Our teachers, I mean, especially the t- teachers I studied with who were older and, you know, from, from old Tibet, then, you know, this is what they learned and this is what they believe and this is what everybody believes. And it's in the scriptures. Okay. And then you have to come back to why am I here and what is my refuge in? Yeah. Did I come here to learn astronomy? Yeah. Is that why I came here to learn astronomy? Did I come here to learn about sex? No. I had that in eighth grade, sixth grade, fifth grade. Whatever it was. Yeah? Did I come here to learn about women's rights and gender equality? Is that why I came here? No. Did I come here to, to learn about politics? No. Why did I come here? Why am I here? Is it necessary 
for me to believe everything that my teachers believe. To be a good disciple, do I have to believe everything they believe? I mean, after all, I'm told that they're Buddhas. Then shouldn't I believe everything they believe? And when we want to drive to Spokane, I shouldn't need GPS. My teachers should know that because they're Buddhists. So they should be able to tell me the road to get to Spokane, too. Mm -hmm. And they should be able to fix the plumbing. Yeah, I mean, they're omniscient. Yeah, fix the plumbing. Fix the computers. Yeah, well, why don't they do all of this? Anyway, they're supposed to have magical powers, and they don't show me their magical powers either. Why don't they do that? Okay. Why did we come here? Yeah. Did we come for a display of magical powers? Yeah. Did we come to learn astronomy and gender relationships and politics and social policy? Yeah. I mean, if you're teachers Tibetan, the, what's the most important issue in their mind? The situation in Tibet, Tibetan independence and autonomy. And whoever speaks in the least way supportive of that and against the communist human rights abuse, they don't care about the, all the other policies of what that person believes in terms of sex and gender and blah, blah, blah. Their one thing is this person is supports Tibet. And that's the one most important, crucial issue for them. Is it for us? Probably not. We may see it as important. But you know, there's differences in opinions. And we may see it as incredibly important, but still not vote for George W. and Trump. Because there's other issues that we think are even, you know, just as important or even more important. Yeah. So it, it's really a thing, like she said, of what is my refuge and why am I here? One of my teachers, and this, this totally drove me crazy, totally, because I am a morning person. Yeah, I love waking up in the morning. It's beautiful. The air is crisp and cool. Nighttime, I am out of it. I won't go to bed. My teacher, yeah. Well, first of all, the teachings are scheduled for 7 in the evening. Do they start then? No. You come, and you could be doing something else, like studying, but the teachings are scheduled for 7, but they don't start until 11. For, so for four hours, when you could be studying the Dharma, you're there sitting in the room, chatting with your friends, you know, but you can't leave because he may walk in at any moment. 
even though it's most likely that he comes 10, 30, 11, but who knows, maybe he'll come early this time or on time. And then the teachings go until four in the morning without a pee-pee break. So you have to go out in the middle to go pee-pee. But anyway, you're sleeping through most of it. Yeah, because he starts at 11 and you usually go to bed at 9.30 or 10 so you can get up early. And so by 11, you're like this. By 12, you're like this. By 1, you're... (laughs) By 2, you're falling over. Why does my teacher do that? I feel so disrespectful falling asleep during the teachings, but I don't want to take coffee at 11 o'clock at night. Anyway, I don't drink coffee, and I hate how it tastes, and it's not good for you. But, But I feel disrespectful. Why does he torment us like this? Okay. You can get really worked up over that one. Yeah. And then why? You know, I'm doing so well. I'm pra- my practice, I've finally gotten myself balanced. I'm in a good situation, living in a place I like with good people as a support system. And then I, I get a little message from my teacher that says, The people in Timbuktu want a Dharma center. Please go and set up a Dharma center ASAP. Timbuktu. That's in Africa. Western Africa, somewhere I think, somewhere near Mali. Anybody know exactly what country Timbuktu is in? We're all equally ignorant, huh? But there is a place called Timbuktu. I think it's somewhere near Mali. If, yeah, French. If the French occupied it. Anyway, I'm supposed to go and set up a Dharma center in Timbuktu. I don't even know what language they speak. I don't even know anybody there. Who's going to help me set up a dark? And I'm supposed to go ASAP, which means tomorrow. (laughs) Help! (laughs) You know? And then you get to Timbuktu, and you start setting up that Dharma Center, and you get another email that says, okay, keep working in Timbuktu, but we also need one in Somali. So go to Somali as ASAP. And you go, I'm Amer- I have an American passport. I don't know if I should go to Somali. Yeah, you remember what happened to the Americans in Somali? <laughs> well, why does my teacher tell me to do this? Yeah, I was perfectly happy where I was. Why is he sending me around the universe like a ping-pong ball? That's another, that, that will throw you for a crisis for a while. 
Yeah. Yeah. Do I go to Do I go to Timbuktu or don't or don't I? I don't want to go. They're supposed to send me a ticket because my teacher wants me to leave ASAP, but they aren't sending me the ticket. Am I supposed to buy my own ticket? No, you don't buy your own ticket. The people who invite you are supposed to. And my teacher wants me to go, but there's no ticket. Do I go anyway? How am I going to go if I don't have a ticket? Anyway, there's COVID. (laughs) Yeah. So what do I do? I don't want to go to Timbuktu. That's where my mother always threatened to send me if I was bad. <laughs> did, you, did your mom ever threaten to send you to Timbuktu? Okay. <laughs> so, you know. Okay. So why are we here? You know, what do you do? Your teacher gave you some instruction. You don't want to do it. Or you can't do it. What do you do? Beside get confused and bang your head against the wall and say, but I want to go back and I had my perfect situation where I was practicing. Well, that's often why our teacher does that because we were getting a little bit too comfortable. But we don't see it that way. Okay. And then, you know, the big finale. Shall we hear the big finale? Then your teacher does something really unethical. Yeah. They're embezzling money from the Dharma Center. They're sleeping with the women in the center. They're lying up, down, and across about, you know, um, oh, what, yeah. In Singapore, this happened. Some one uh, lama came, and he needs money uh, to rebuild his monastery in Tibet. You know, and uh, and appointed one of the students who came, who of course felt very flattered. She was in charge of collecting the money to rebuild this monastery in Tibet. And she did that, and he was going to bring pictures of the monastery the next year when he came, when it was, you know, rebuilt. And he came the next year, and, oh, he had forgotten the pictures, but he still needed more money to to keep building the monastery. Until they found out that actually he wasn't building a monastery with the money. What was he doing? Do you remember? Oh, it was before. Yeah, I don't know what he was doing. But he did have a nice gold Rolex watch. Okay. Or your teacher sleeping with different students. Yeah. Sometimes one after the other, if you, you know. I, I've heard stories, amazing stories. Then what do you do? And they deny it. But everybody knows it's a secret in public. And everybody knows. But they're denying it. 
and everything, everybody around them is denying it. Okay. And then you really have a big crisis because this is the person who I trusted to teach me ethical conduct and they're not practicing what they're preaching. And my trust is broken. How can I trust them if they're doing this? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so what do you do then? I'll tell you his, what His Holiness's advice was, because that, that one's a really hard one. Okay? I did a, a whole series of teachings that uh, some of the people from uh, Rikpa wrote me when they were in the, in, the mixed, in the midst of one of their big explosions. That poor group had so many explosions over the years. But the most recent one, and... Uh, which was a few years ago, and I did a whole series of talks about the relationship with the guru according to how His Holiness teaches it. Yeah, because His Holiness is incredibly practical. Yeah. Um, So what His Holiness said is if your teacher is doing something that you just cannot accept, you know, something that's... You know, that basically, he, His Holiness didn't say this, but I've heard other te- Tibetans say this. Basically, the teacher is breaking their part of the Samaya by acting in that way. Um, so, and you, you, you know, you trusted them, you appreciate them, but you just can't go back. Yeah. What His Holiness said to do is remember the kindness that that person showed you. Don't trash them publicly, yeah, but remember their kindness, their personal kindness for introducing you to the Dharma, for getting you going in your practice, uh, for teaching you everything they, they taught you that was so important. You know, because you still have faith in the Dharma. You know, it's just you've lost faith in that particular teacher. So he said, really appreciate uh, and respect what that teacher has done for you in the past, but keep a respectful distance because, you know, what's happening in the group or what the te- how the teacher is behaving is just too much. You can't accept that. So keep a respectful distance, develop a relationship with other teachers, but you don't have to hate this person. Yeah. You don't have to hate them. You don't have to see them as, you know, the embodiment of, of corruption. You know, you just remember their kindness and keep a distance and don't go for teachings with them. Yeah. So that, that can be challenging because we like to put people in boxes. And they're either all good or they're all, all bad. But this is calling for us, again, to have a, to stretch our mind, to have a broader mind, that this teacher did do things that were beneficial. 
Yeah. That they do have uh, kindness and compassion and taught me things that have really been important to me. Yeah. And I respect that and I honor that and I appreciate that. And I'm keeping a distance now because of what's happening, which I do not understand and I cannot make sense of and uh, does not seem proper conduct to me. So I'm keeping a distance. And then, you know, just you keep that distance. You don't need to talk bad about them to to other people, you know, to go around and criticize them to other people. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, for the other ones, the women, the gender, the gender, the <laughs> cosmology, diet, your teacher drinks salty, buttery Tibetan tea that is bad for their health. And the doctor told them not to drink it. In Tibet, it's okay. It works for that climate, but not here. But they still drink it. And it's bad for them. Yeah, why can't they give it up? You get all wigged out about that. I'm praying for your long life, and you're not doing anything to have a long life. (laughs) Yeah? And I'm mad. Because you have good advice, and you... Get, tell us, you know, that when you give us advice, we should practice the Dharma advice. And we're trying to keep you alive by giving you dietary advice and you keep on dr- eating meat and drinking this disgusting Tibetan tea. Yeah. Here, have some lettuce. <laughs> yeah, lettuce and herb tea. Yeah. Circumimitry, <laughs> when, he, when he came to the West and somebody gave him salad, he said, this is what rabbits eat. <laughs> you know? I mean, if you're from Tibet, they don't know what salad is. It's too high climate, you know? They have no idea. This is what rabbits eat. So <laughs> yeah. But, you know, always come back to, why am I here? Yeah. Why am I here? What is my refuge? Yeah. My refuge is in the Buddha Dharma Sangha. It is not in this person's personality. My refuge is not in their beliefs, political or otherwise. Yeah, my refuge is in the Buddha Dharma Sangha, and I came here to learn the Buddha's teachings because I know for myself, from my own experience, that when I listen to them and put them into practice, they help me. And that I know from my own experience, and nobody can tell me that otherwise. I have found that... uh this attitude to respect uh, uh, that I received before from the teacher is very, I feel congruent. It, it, it feels good. It feels uh, like uh, 
is something that is uh, giving me a, a, a feeling of gratitude, mm -hmm. but at the same time, there is a, a need of uh, putting put distance, get uh, distant from from this person, this teacher. Uh, the thing that I th th I uh, do not understand when you say when you say but you don't criticize uh, openly with other people. I think it's not about criticizing someone because also if somebody would uh, check my conduct, as, uh, my personal conduct, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. we'll find very very difficult things. Maybe not after the Dharma, but before for sure. <laughs> so I have nobody to criticize the person, but I think that as. Um, Dharma practitioner and also with my commitment with uh, telling the truth, mm -hmm. I think that it is, it is important to say uh, what I know, mm -hmm. not uh, pr propagate, no, but just to speak out about the situations. Mm -hmm. Mainly if the motivation is to put together the values that I have learned as a Western person <laughs> with the values that uh, because I, are these are universal va the values no? mm -hmm. so in this uh, regard I think that it is important to speak out and to mm -hmm. say yeah what yeah. do you think I think it's important also yeah and sometimes you speak out about it and other people will criticize you yeah but the thing, what's important is how you speak out about it. Do you speak out like, you know, we trusted this person. He has a precept like this. And then he went and he had sex with this one and that one and got somebody pregnant and is giving them money and is he's not even acknowledging it. The whole system is covering up for him. And this whole thing is corrupt and I don't want any part of it. Okay. What, what's going on in your mind? What's your motivation if you speak like that? There's anger, isn't there? Yeah. A lot of anger, bitterness, even hatred. Okay. Whereas, if you say, okay, we receive this information, yeah, uh, we want an impartial investigation, this is what some of us had to do regarding another lama. You know, we want an in, impartial investigation. So we're not saying everything is true. We're saying we want an impartial investigation. Yeah, not by their friends, not by their in or their labrang. Yeah, an impartial investigation. And if the results show that, yes, this person has been doing this, then the system should hold them accountable. Yeah. And here you're speaking with a calm voice. You're not angry. You may have a tremendous feeling of sorrow in your heart. Yeah. That, that what you thought was different, it isn't. You know, this winds up to be like the Catholic Church. You know, so you're very sorrowful for the whole thing. Uh, but you also know that it's important 
at least in the West, that this be handled openly and the person held accountable. Tibetan culture, no, they never do like that. They haven't for centuries. It's always under the table, it's explained away, it's hidden. Be and their reason is because, you know, if uh, people lose faith in that teacher, they will lose faith in the Dharma. We don't want them to lose faith in the Dharma, so we cover it up. In the West, the way Western people think it's, or not all Western people, but many, the situation is the opposite. If it's brought out in the open and discussed and resolved, then it doesn't destroy our faith. But what destroys our faith is all the cover-up, sometimes even more than the initial you know, the initial deed, sometimes the cover-up is more disturbing to our minds than that, okay? So you have a big cultural thing here, too, yeah, in addition to the color of the sky being blue, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, oh, it's not blue. What happened to that side of Mount Meru? It turned gray, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> turn gray today. So, okay. But so but we we know for our culture this is what needs to be happen. We accept that the Tibetans are different. We cannot make them change. That's one of the big things you learn. You cannot make another t culture change. And if you go in there and you are angry and raging with anger either about women not being able to take bhikshuni ordination or about gay stuff or about your teacher sleeping around or about Tibetan tea. If you go in there raging, they dismiss you because your mind is overwhelmed by an affliction at that time. So they say, you're angry. It's motivated by self-centeredness, uh, you know. We just don't, we're not going to give that any energy at all. So, you, you know, but so you know that you have to operate within your own culture. And, you know, if there's an investigation and it comes out, then, you know, this is what happened. We should own it. Some of your Dharma friends are going to say no. You're breaking Samaya. You should forgive him. Where's your forgiveness? Or he, this is actually the action of a Buddha because he is a Buddha and we can't know the motivations of all the Buddhas. And this could actually be beneficial for the woman and for the, the whole organization. We just don't understand it. Yeah. You hear those reasons. Yeah. But. You don't have to get mad at people who have those ideas. Yeah. Because if we start getting mad at everybody who has a different idea than us about anything whatsoever, who's that going to leave us to be friends with? Only ourselves. Because we will disagree with at least, you know, with everybody at least over some topics.
Yeah. And it's just me. And of course, I'm right about everything, but the world doesn't appreciate it. But I'm also very lonely now because I've kicked out all my friends. Okay? So it's, it's really a call to us to, uh, to be able to hold a bigger mind and talk about actions and ideas instead of trashing the person. Yeah. So this action, you know, is against this precept or whatever it is, you know, but that doesn't mean the person is totally corrupt and they've never done anything good in their life and never do, will do anything good in their life. And then we speak the truth as we know it. And some of our old friends may call us names and tell us we're way off and we're going to go burn in hell for breaking Samaya. But if we have a, a good motivation and we watch our speech, I think it should be okay. Yeah. I mean, His Holiness remarked about that. Actually, when, uh, you know, when we talked to him, this was way back in 93, he said, somebody misbehaves, you should put it in the newspaper. Because, you know, maybe a little bit of public pressure will, will do that. That's not actually my style to put something in the newspaper, but, you know, calling for an impartial examination or, you know, writing to the organization itself. Um, what I would be interested to know, if something happened in Tibet, and um, I understand the reason for covering it up, but did they do something internally, some investigation, and did they do something to the people who have done misdeeds? No, I don't think they did anything. They just let it go? Yeah. That's incredible. Because they're a high lama. <laughs> yeah, we have different standards, but, you know, they're, they're, yeah, this is just their culture. There's no internal accountability. Yeah. But look at the Catholic Church. How long has that abuse of, of, of children, how long was that, was that going on? It hasn't just been since the 70s and 80s. I'm sure this has been going on for centuries. Yeah? Was there any, you know, holding anybody accountable? I doubt it. Yeah? And if you brought it up, you got blamed. Yeah? When we wrote, we started this petition regarding accusations against one lama, and we just called for an impartial investigation. You know, I had Dharma friends, you know, one Dharma friend I had known for decades, right, and say, you better be careful, you're breaking Samaya, you're seeing the gurus impure, he's a holy being, and our other teacher said he's a holy being, and how can you criticize a holy I wasn't criticizing, I was just asking for an impartial investigation. I wasn't saying he was guilty, I just said we need to get to the bottom of this. Yeah, but 
for her, just asking that question meant I was pronouncing him guilty. And, you know, and out of compassion, she was telling me to stop it so I didn't get born in the hell realm. And then another person wrote me, another nun wrote, and she said, why are you people stirring this all up by asking for an investigation? You're stirring it up. You're the one who's making it into a big thing that's dividing everybody in this group because some people believe it, some people don't. Why are you asking for an investigation which is splitting the group? Yeah, and it's like, wait a minute, I'm the one responsible for splitting the group, not somebody who maybe did this action to start with? Yeah, it's, you're, you're condemning, you're shooting the messenger instead of the origin of where it started from? I didn't say that because it was useless. Both of these people I didn't respond to because it was useless. But it was just very interesting to see how people's minds worked. Yeah? And to check up, you know, do I ever do that? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, just cultural differences. I'm sure, I mean, the Tibetans often, we do things that they think we're nuts for doing. You know, and it starts with eating lettuce, and it goes way beyond that. <laughs> yeah, that these inchies, you know, what are they thinking? Okay, so um, I hope... Uh, yeah, uh, I hope I didn't cause too much doubt to arise in the minds of people who are new to the Dharma, hearing about scandals and things like that. Yeah, I'm sorry if if that's what happened. Um, I'm just trying to speak realistically, and that some people here have you know, have experienced these kind of crises in their own Dharma practice. And it's good to, to uh, know how to deal with them. Okay.